From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers magazine, The National Conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, April 18th through Friday, April 22nd, 2022. It was a wild week of rising prices, escalating tensions, intensifying political debate, thickening brain fog, increasing questions about masks and musk, as well as the 52nd annual installment of Earth Day. We're about to embark upon a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, we've got righties, we've got fence-sitters. Please, don't get angry. Just listen closely, and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism, regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey with the Talkers Top 10 Stories of the Week, along with Newsmax CEO Christopher Ruddy on the war, radio physician Dr. Dahlia Wax on the pandemic, talk media icon Bill O'Reilly on TV journalism, and civil rights activist Joe Madison on race relations. Influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Wrap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information's gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. This installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap is being brought to you in part by the classic rock band Gun Hill Road. Check them out at gunhillroadmusic.com. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, Earth Day and climate change. This Friday, April 22nd, was the 52nd installment of Earth Day, which began in 1970 to increase international awareness the planet's environmental issues. And regardless of your political or scientific opinion of climate change, discussion of the topic in the media grows from year to year. At number nine, big tech and social media. The saga of Elon Musk and Twitter rolls on. The mega businessman announced on Thursday that he's lined up commitments worth $46.5 billion to finance the takeover deal. Commitments from himself, Morgan Stanley, and other unnamed financial institutions, according to the Securities and Exchange Commission. At number eight, the Florida versus Disney flap. This is a complex story that involves the Florida legislature voting to take away the Disney organization's special status to function in many ways as an independent government in operating its iconic or Orlando area theme parks, which are vital entities within the Sunshine State's economy. It boils down to a dispute between the hospitality industry giant and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis regarding their opposing positions on the Parental Rights and Education Bill, often referred to by its detractors as the Don't Say Gay Bill. 
President Biden said the Republicans are now going after Mickey Mouse. At number seven, race relations. Race also ties into education in terms of the national conversation this week as controversy continues to rage from school district to school district over the teaching of what is referred to as critical race theory. Speaking of race relations, stay tuned for a very dramatic conversation about race in America coming up on today's program when we present an interview that I conducted this week with African-American Sirius XM satellite radio talk show host Joe Madison. At number six, education. Between the Disney controversy and the critical race theory issue, education was a prominent topic on news talk shows across America this past week. And that's just for starters. The devastating impact of the pandemic upon schools, teachers, parents, and students is just beginning to be calculated. At number five, crime and immigration. Crime and violence in the nation's cities continues to rise, causing citizen outrage that has become a driving political issue in upcoming local elections. Problems at the southern border are not going away. As a matter of fact, they're worsening, with much blame being heaped on the Biden administration for what appears to be its inaction on the crisis. At number four, a tie between the January 6th committee, the midterm elections, and Donald Trump activities. Contentious partisan politics continue to intensify as the rift between red and blue ideology in America widens day by day. Scrutiny over former President Donald Trump's involvement in and influence over the Capitol riot grinds on as the January 6th committee fights the clock to get its work done prior to the midterm elections and what could likely be a GOP takeover of both houses of Congress. At number three, COVID-19. In addition to lingering concern over variants, vaccines, and boosters, much of the conversation about the pandemic this week focused on the issue of a federal judge overthrowing the mask mandate as it applies to public transportation. Lots of folks are uncertain about whether or not to wear a mask while flying if the choice is optional. There's also been an increase of conversation about brain fog and other psychological consequences facing the public as a result of the devastating impact COVID has had and is still having upon our societal processes. At number two, the Russia-Ukraine war, U.S. foreign policy and the French election. The level of atrocities unleashed upon the Ukrainian people at the hands of Vladimir Putin and his Russian war machine are continuing to startle and disgust democratic countries throughout the Western world. But condemnation of Moscow is not a unanimous position around the globe or even domestically, further heightening the tension and awareness of risk attached to this increasingly frightening drama. And at number one, the economy. Once again, it's the economy, stupid, as the average American is finding it increasingly difficult to entirely focus on war and issues that appear to be far from home when the cost of living continues to rise as reflected in the basic processes of filling the gas tank, putting food on the table, and maintaining a roof over your head. Inflation is roaring, and the Fed, the president, employers, and all aspects of the business infrastructure are flailing about, trying to get a handle on what feels like an overlapping and over overwhelming set of crises. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. For the first time in more than a month and a half, the Russia-Ukraine war is not at the very top of the Talkers chart, but it's a powerful number two. Joining us now to discuss the situation is Christopher Ruddy, the CEO of one of the hottest news organizations in American television, radio and print, as well as on the web, Newsmax. You have um, written a lot of very interesting things in terms of your own editorial opinion about um, the Russia-Ukraine war 
and um, the political debate that goes on, not only in the world, but in the U.S. about it. What is your position on the war at this point? Well, uh, Michael, first of all, thank you for having me. And I think that we are talking about the future of the world right now. The world hangs in balance with what's going on. Certainly, the lives that we will live in the next generation could very well be determined over the next 30, 60, 90 days and how this war unfolds. And um, I believe that uh, we're, we have not seen anything like this since Hitler and Stalin. And um, it is just unbelievable in my lifetime that one European nation would invade another nation, a democratic one, completely unprovoked by that nation with no real justification to invade. And then begin slaughtering its citizens and destroying its cities and killing women and children, deporting its citizens into concentration camps back into their homeland. I mean, this is just barbaric. And uh, initially, I think we saw a very strong response from the Europeans. We saw a lukewarm response, a tepid response from the Biden administration. Uh, and interestingly enough, the Biden administration has stepped up and it really improved. And I'm, I'm liking what they're doing. And uh, the Europeans seem to have faded somewhat. And uh, we're bucking them up now. But mm. my position is that Putin is uh, absolutely evil. If there was any doubt about it, it's very clear he is. And I believe it's a bipartisan consensus issue that uh, we're the country is should be united. Uh, should be united, I just underline the word should be, uh, against this evil. And um, and I think generally there is a lot of unity on the issue, but not as much as there should be. So you find it akin to what happened uh, back in the 30s and the 40s in Europe, that, that it's, a, it's another situation. I mean, Neville Chamberlain, you know, peace in our time. And then he, of course, has been forever chastised as the appeaser. Um, and yet we're dealing with now the potential of nuclear war as opposed to then they didn't quite know that there could be nuclear war. So it was um, a, a different set of risks involved. Um, how do you think the argument within the GOP is going uh, in dealing with it? Because um, we're picking up on our talkers research. There are some, not many, but some who feel that um, we should stay out of this. It's not our concern. Uh, how, how, is yeah. the, how is the Republican Party handling this? Well, um, well, uh, let's just start with Churchill. And, you know, Churchill always called World War II the unnecessary war. And to his dying day, he always referred to it as the unnecessary war because of the appeasement of the 30s. And we actually have appeased uh, Putin quite a bit in his invasion of Georgia in 2008 and the invasion of Crimea when the best Barack Obama did, could do and Joe Biden at the time was send toothbrushes to the Ukrainians and not let them fight. Then Putin felt he could get away with this. And um, there's always been an isolationist movement in the Republican Party. I would say it's maybe 20 percent of the Republican conservative movement. Um, now, it used to be much bigger, but after World War II, people realized what does happen in Europe and the rest of the world will affect America eventually. And that when you're the superpower of the world and the leader of the free world, there's a responsibility that comes with that. And so I think most people, and if you look at the numbers, 80 percent don't like Putin and the Republican Party. 
And there's generally strong support for um, opposing Putin's war. Now, I don't meet many Americans that want the United States to go to war directly with Putin. I don't think it's necessary. I think we should do what we did with Afghanistan under the Soviets and assist these uh, the Ukrainians who are really fighting for their freedom. And I think it's uh, tremendous. We all should respect what they're doing. The Fox News um, is playing a major role here in, in really sort of dividing the party. You know, Tucker Carlson, who, um, you know, I would say I agree with most of what Tucker says. I strongly, strongly disagree and oppose what he says is on the Putin and the Ukraine. And he's been sort of uh, very manipulative, I would say, in trying to get people to oppose this war. You probably see it as well, where they're saying, why are we worried about the Ukraine? We should be worried about the Mexican border. That's one of his talking points. Mm-hmm. Or it's costing me too much money now at the gas pump to, to, to go against Putin. Uh, if you remember back during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, there was this uh, thing called mutually assured destruction, MAD. And somehow we felt that we were dealing with an underlying rationality uh, for the Soviets and, of course, the, the American government. And that um, and that, that's what prevented us from eventually pressing the buttons and blowing ourselves off the face of the earth. I know when we were having problems and we still have problems with the um, with Islam and um, the Middle East, there's this feeling that these people are irrational. They're not afraid to die. They, they, they're fanatical. Um, what is your view of Putin? You said he's evil. Do you think that he is irrational? Well, you know, some people said Hitler was perfectly rational. He just had an ideology that was diabolical. I don't know. You know, some people said he was an evil genius. Some people he's crazy. It's sort of hard to tell, right, without sitting there with a psychoanalyst. And But what we do know, you know, you know them by their fruits. You know that what Hitler did was absolutely terrible. But um, Putin is killing innocent women and children. There was no provocation. There was no... It was just, he just went in there. He wants to take over a country and he's making up stuff like NATO. NATO, there was no even chance that Ukraine was going to join NATO. They couldn't under the under the treaty because they had a disputed border. There was no movement to have them be a member other than the Ukrainians wanted it, but there was no like meetings or preparations. So that's just totally contrived. The idea that there's Nazis running Ukraine is just insane. That's sort of irrational. So where does that come from? And then he goes in and he starts killing women and children, destroying cities like we've never seen in modern times. And then you're thinking, is this guy capable of something far worse? And generally the consensus, and I ask a lot of people, I know I've talked to people that know Putin, and you ask them, would he use a nuclear weapon? And they say, yes, he would. On the other hand, the the ability to do that requires probably a consensus or um, people in the chain of command that agree with him. And then we ha- we don't know how that power structure works. That's Christopher Ruddy, CEO of Newsmax, discussing the Russia-Ukraine war. Coming up next, the latest on the pandemic. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap.
One of the great bands of the golden age of album rock, Gun Hill Road, has been around for more than 50 years. The members of Gun Hill Road are Steve Goldrich, Paul Reich, Glenn Leopold, Brian Coonan, and yours truly, Michael Harrison. I wrote the lyrics to a song on our new album, What Year Is This? It's titled, I Know You're Real. It's about the relationship between human beings and our friends in the animal kingdom. I know you're real, I know you're real I understand that you're real Please take a moment to write down the following web address to see the music video of this inspirational song that contains some wonderful animal images that'll rock your heart and soothe your soul. Here's the address, write it down. I know you are real.com. That's I know you are real.com. If you love animals, you'll feel real good after seeing this video. I know you are real.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison rap. COVID-19 continues to play a major role in day-to-day American life. Let's catch up with one of talk radio's most popular and trusted physicians. She's heard coast-to-coast daily on the Genesis Communications Network, Dr. Dahlia Wax. Dr. Wax, a couple of things. First, let's start with the medical, and then I want to talk a bit about um, the questions people have about masks and travel and uh, things of that nature. Medically, what's your uh, professional opinion about the state of COVID-19? Fantastic question. So we are very fortunate to have our vaccine program. We have some therapeutics, although not easily accessible, as well as we have natural immunity with COVID having been around now for about two, two and a half years. So I think Americans are in a better position now to take on any next wave. However, from a public health standpoint, we are in a little bit of danger because sadly you don't have the respect for the CDC, you don't have the respect for public health measures because of some misuse of them. And so when I do try to talk to people about, "Mm, you might want to get a booster, we have another wave coming, you might want to, there's such fatigue on the subject that I feel like if I do have a public health emergency that I need to convey a message for, we've blown it. And we've had such a boy, you know, like the, the boy who cried wolf scenario that um, we've we've definitely damaged our public health messaging, and and the where we go from here is going to be pivotal on how we get America on board with future public health campaigns. What a dangerous situation, isn't it? It is. They, there's a lack of trust. There's fatigue. People think there was overreach with the government, and if this happened for COVID. And we're now going through a huge fight over masks during this this baby Omicron wave. What happens if, God forbid, we have, you know, Ebola or Zika or something else come our way? And the World Health Organization is saying there's going to be something bigger than COVID. I just don't think the American public has it in them anymore after everything that happened with COVID. We'll get a little bit into that in a moment. But um, what, what's your take or, or your view, if you have any? because it seems very murky, on what's happening in Shanghai, China. So, you know, it's very frightening to think that animals are being slaughtered, people are being stuck in their apartments without food. And, of course, there's there, there's always that, you know, risk of misinformation because we don't have access to on-the-ground information. We don't have reporters there, obviously. But it's frightening that you still have these approaches to try to have a zero COVID policy 
when the virus is outsmarting us, we, we're still under this under this assumption that we can control the virus. And so humans think they could, it's like man dinks, God links. Humans, you know, humans think they could control nature, can control this, and God laughs or nature laughs. And so you have people possibly starving, not going to the doctor, in depression, maybe substance abuse, and we could be possibly, because we're trying to control baby Omicron or that Omicron variant, we could be putting people at more public health risk. And so I, I don't think what Shanghai is doing is the right approach. I don't think they're going to get as much gain, and their ROI is not going to be there. And I feel it's going to put Shanghai into a more public health crisis, especially since we need Shanghai and multiple countries need them for exports and for our medications. And I think it could cause more harm than good. Let's go back to the masks. Um, I, I recently flew for the first time since the pandemic happened. So I, I flew. It was a strange feeling flying for the first time in a couple of years. And uh, I have to tell you, wearing the mask made the airport and the flight experience for me, because I do have certain breathing issues, it made it very uncomfortable. Um, what do you, what, what's your feeling about flying and masks and um, whatever the state of the, <laughs> the, the mandate or lack thereof is? So true. And, and I'm glad you, you put your own personal experience in because I, my mind changed with masks on a plane when I went to Talkers last year and I went from Las Vegas to New York and I found that my lungs did notice a big difference with the partial pressure oxygen. And in order for me to feel like I could breathe and I'm not claustrophobic and I'm not anti-mask, I kept ordering something to drink mm. so I could be allowed to remove my mask, which isn't healthy because then now you're you're overflowing with fluid just so you could try to breathe it it was very impractical especially since we're sitting like sardines on a plane as it is next to each other and being able to spread MRSA and other sorts of infectious disease that the that the mask can't hold and you know when you look at people fighting and two-year-old kids with autism getting kicked off planes again it's one of those things where i think it does more harm than good the plane that I was on was sold out, and just being on a sold-out plane uh, is is not comfortable. I was also mm -hmm. on an airline that I will not mention that is under assault right now in terms of the, the wars of public opinion for late flights and all kinds of mm -hmm. other problems they've had. As it turned out, the biggest problem I had was the mask and just the, the discomfort of being on a plane on a three-hour and 15-minute flight um, and having not flown for a long time and waiting for the plane. But the plane wasn't late. The plane left on time. And here's the part that was interesting. Everybody was nice. They, 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 the, mm -hmm. There were no nasty passengers. Nobody seems, Everybody seemed to go out of their way to be friendly it was almost like don't look at me i'm not a i'm not an air rage person um so on that level it was cool personally do you think maybe the public is is gonna pull it together and the politicians could pull it together do you have any optimism i mean you're a talk show host you deal with this all the time in addition to being a medical doctor what's your personal feeling about the the nature of these times going forward well, that's wonderful. It's a good question. I mean, with the exception of the, the idiot that kept bugging Mike Tyson, and then Mike Tyson responded by punching him on the plane. 
I think the average person does not want to, you know, get into it in the middle of a plane and does not want to be kicked off air and be put on a no-fly zone. And I also think the average politician is very worried about the midterms and is realizing that that many of these restrictions are not popular. And the science is showing that the virus is outsmarting the mask. And so I think I think the politicians are realizing that you know, if the the fear that people once had, they don't, and and they're going to have their work cut out for them when a future public health crisis comes. So they might want to not supersaturate all the tools they have now because they need to be able to say, "Hey guys, I would like you to start wearing masks. We have something bigger." coming around the bend. Last week on the program, Victoria Jones and I spoke about uh, this this brain fog, this, this, this murky, very hard to pin down um, confusion, memory loss, everything that, uh, yeah. you know, goes with not thinking clearly. And, you know, I don't know if it's anecdotal. I don't know if it's my imagination, her imagination or everybody I talked to. But um, as a as a medical doctor, do you notice that there seems to be widespread brain fog, whatever that means, going on in our society? Absolutely. You hit it on the head. It is something that I've noticed and I do attribute it to partially to the COVID virus. I think many people that were affected with COVID, despite our vaccination status, despite getting Delta or Omicron, I see it in my friends, I see it in my family. Brain, the brain fog, we believe, is a result of some sort of inflammatory process from our exposure to COVID, which is why I really don't want us exposed to this virus. But the other thing also is many of us did not keep our work routines. We did not keep our exercise routines. We gained weight. We ate takeout. And all of those sadly contributed, but especially depression. And when many people look at our future as murky and foggy as to what is you know, what's life going to be like? Are we going to be shut down again? Is my career going to flourish or is my career over? That also accelerates brain fog. So I think it's a it's a whole slew of things. And the covid pandemic is is mostly to blame. That's nationally syndicated Genesis Communications Network talk radio host, Dr. Dahlia Wax. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Earlier in the show, we heard from one of the movers and shakers in cable news talk television, Christopher Ruddy, the CEO of Newsmax. Now, let's hear about the cable news talk television scene from one of the major pioneers of the genre, Bill O'Reilly. What is your view now that you have that distance of time and distance? You do have distance, not just time. You are, as you've described, operating your own platform and uh, your own captain. What is your objective if if you can be objective or even your subjective assessment of the current cable news talk television wars and situation as as a consumer well what's happened what's happening cable news is that they now segment for a certain audience um and then it used to be when i was doing it when we started fox news in 1996 we try to get as many people in the watch as possible. It was still a wide, what they call a wide broadcast. Um, we wanted to um, appeal to everybody. That's gone. So now it's, okay, who do I want to convince to watch me tonight? What tribe? What group? And then I'm going to fashion what I do and say to that group. 
Well, I never did that. Not on radio, not on television. I speak from what I believe is best for the country and for the folks. My, As you know, my slogan is, we're looking out for you. I've always had that. What is best for the majority of the American people? I don't care what ideology you are, and that is where I am still. But the cable news operations and the network news operations, you got to put those together now. There's no difference. None. They are going for a certain group of people who hold a certain belief system. And the others be damned. And that's what we're seeing. When you do that, you risk being repetitive. And that has absolutely happened on all the network news and all the cable news. It's the same thing over and over and over again with very little unique content. As As a former radio programmer, I learned a lesson that I I find a lot of the younger ones do not know. And that is when you do this daily dance of affirmation, that's what I call it, the daily dance of affirmation, telling people what they already believe so they'll like you and feel good, get a, you know, a rush of dopamine when they hear their ideas coming back at them. When you do that, or in broadcasting terms, when you super serve the core, the base, super serve them, you know, you wind up with a happier core and a smaller core that it doesn't expand. It gets smaller and smaller until you wind up with the, the most radical people possible and lower ratings. And eventually they turn on you when you try to move beyond them or expand beyond them. Sure. That, that's basically um, what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I had some cancellations. We are a subscription news service at BillOReilly.com. So it's not free. Most podcasts are free. We're not. But we don't charge a lot. I wanted everybody to be able to afford it. But when I reported two days after the election of 2020 that there wasn't going to be an overturn of that election, it wasn't going to happen. And I knew that because I have people in the Justice Department. I think I have the best connections in the country. There's nobody. And if you read my new book, Killing the Killers, that will be proven. Nobody gets the information that I get. And I told my audience, it's not going to happen. We had we had some cancellations. People didn't want to hear it. And what am I supposed to do? But now, the people on cable and network news, all of them, are either told, most of them are told, what to do and how to do it. And CNN is the best example of that. This is what you are going to do says Jeff Zucker. And they all do it because they want the paycheck. Okay? They do that at Fox. They go, oh, Fox, Fox. Fox is much more independent as far as management than CNN was. I mean, whatever Zucker wanted, that's what you did. Fox, not that way even today. They're segmented way more than they were when I was there. And they're going for a much more conservative audience than they used to. And those people are underserved. So they do come in to watch because you can't hear what Fox is telling you anywhere else. You can hear it on the radio, but not on television. 
So they they can still make a lot of money by going after those folks. But you know, it, it's more. Yes, your ratings will decline as as you become narrower in your focus, but you can still make a lot of money in that narrow realm. That's Bill O'Reilly, former Fox News Channel star who's killing it nationally on talk radio and on the Internet. His new nightly show on radio is titled No Spin News. If you'd like to hear more of that conversation, it can be found on my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview at MHInterview.com. Coming up next, a conversation with the highest ranked African-American radio talk show host on the Talkers Heavy 100 and a recent inductee into the Radio Hall of Fame. Joe Madison, you're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Joe Madison of Sirius XM Satellite Radio's Urban View Channel is one of the most successful, influential, and honored talk show hosts on radio in America today. Recently inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame, Joe is the highest-ranked African-American on the Talker's Heavy 100 list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Joe's just written a book with David Canton titled Radioactive, which chronicles his life as a broadcasting civil rights activist going back to his days growing up in segregated Dayton, Ohio, to interviewing President Barack Obama in the Oval Office. Here's a dramatic excerpt from a longer conversation I had this week with Joe on my podcast. I've known you for many decades, Joe. I've known you a long time. We go back to the early 90s together, and I've watched your career, and I've listened to you, and I I um, kind of see a mellowing of your attitude toward the differences and the similarities between the races. Um, have you gone through a transition over the decades in terms of your view of white people and or the relationship between black and white? No, no. Be- and I'll tell you, and that's why I wanted to write the book. No, uh, th- that was one of the most difficult things in dealing with the editor and the uh, uh, and and the and and Dr. Canton. Um, my my ad- look, 
in the book, I, I talk about um, the, the, the discrimination uh, I faced. Uh, I talk about like one episode, you know, as, as a child and not even realizing that I was being discriminated, like a membership to the downtown YMCA, where if you were black, you couldn't you couldn't join the downtown YMCA because they had a, a a black YMCA on Fifth Street on the west side of Dayton, and how a group of of, uh, of black leaders uh, I, I identified a couple of my friends a, a, a few of us young guys there's five I, I can there's about maybe three or four of us and that I looked up one day and I have a membership. In the downtown YMCA, well, I couldn't afford it. So how did this happen? Because these <clears throat> these um, uh, and black leaders said, you know what? We're going to integrate this YMCA, and we're going to select uh, a, a two or three young men, uh, and 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 we're going to give them. We're going to pay for their membership, and that's how that that's how that YMCA got integrated. I didn't know it. All I knew was they had a a, a beautiful, huge swimming pool, um, uh, and 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 I realized that you know I was being I was uh, there to uh, as part of an effort to to uh, to uh, integrate. I talk about in the book uh, how a, um, a one of a, a businessman in our community. He was uh, the mortician. Mr. Bowman, that's how we knew him, Clarence Bowman. And he moved into an all-white neighborhood. And uh, the adults, now I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an adolescent, and they were, they were, they got angry at him. Why? Not because he moved into an all-white neighborhood, but he made a, a public statement where he said, I don't want another black person moving on the same block. Really? And the folks and, and black folks said, what now? Now, why? And I'll tell you why. And I talk about it. I write about it or it's written about. Mm -hmm. And that is because in those days they were doing blockbusting. Now, what was blockbusting? A black person or black family would move into a neighborhood and then the real estate agents would, would call around to the white uh, families and say, well, you know, a black family has moved on your block. You may want to sell because the value of your homes are going to go down. So he said, don't move on my block. Go the next block over. And and and, and it took me a while to understand what he was trying to do. And that was to prevent blockbusting. Um, to answer your question, I, I write about how black people. And white people have interacted in my life who have who have uh, been responsible for uh, my success. Um, I, I talk about, um, you know, uh, being uh, being captain of a football team my freshman year in college, undefeated team. In those days, freshmen had their own schedule and, and a coach because I was active. In, in, in the black student movement in the, uh, you know, late 60s, you know, 67, 68, the coach tell, told me before the summer camp opened up, 
don't come don't come to the to practice. Don't come. You're off the team. We don't want your kind on the team. And how my white high school coach came uh, helped me end up with uh, uh, at Washington University, where where uh, the coach there, matter of fact, an all white coaching staff said, "My man, we want you." We want you here. And I ended up being captain of that team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, you, 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 and I'll say this, and I, and this is not, I'm not being disrespectful. You look at me or you know me through the prism of your experience, not really knowing why, uh, the, the, you know, what what my life has been has has been like that's why i'm asking uh, you these questions I, yeah, am i am i a race man am i a race man am i in other words let me let me make this very clear i've lived my life and i've made it very clear i will not be undervalued underestimated or marginalized you know i go to i i you know i i ended up going to wwdb Let's talk about that chapter where I'm, I'm, I'm the only black person on, 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 on the air at this iconic uh, station. Um, my shift was midnight to 530 in the morning. This is Philadelphia. This was right after the move incident. So I'm, I moved my entire family from Detroit, where I had my political base, where I started my broadcasting career, uh, well-known. And so I moved to Philadelphia. My first full-time job after spending 10 years doing weekends in talk radio at WXYZ that became WXYT. By the way, the only black person at the station. But I'm, I'm doing it. I'm learning. And, I'm, and, and, and then I'm called into the president's the owner of the station, WWDB, and the program director who tells me we're getting complaints from our listeners that you're talking too much about black people. And so, you know, you ought to cool it. And, and, and I'm what? I said, what are you talking about? And, um, and basically, and, and that, so I, I decided, you know, I'm not going to sit up here and have somebody tell me, that I can, wait a minute, Philadelphia, and you, you're telling me you're getting letters. This is before social media, and you don't want me to talk about black people, or I'm talking about them too much. And 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 then of course the other talk personalities, or uh, or Homer, you name them, you know them. I you know, they're all iconic uh, broadcasters, superb broadcasters. They could talk about black people all they wanted to. So I just decided, you know what, Michael, the hell with it. So I decided I'm going to show the the uh, dichotomy, the difference uh, that, you know, we're all not alike. So I, I decided I'm going to interview Ron Brown, who was running to be the first black chairman of the Democratic National Committee. And I knew him very well. We had we had relationships that go back when he ran the Urban League. And I decided then I was also going to interview, now get this, Louis Farrakhan. 
Now, there couldn't be two more distinct uh, individuals that were the opposites of each other. And um, the next day, I'm called in to the office and fired. I'm fired. Now, my family has moved. My, you know, they've been uprooted. They, we lived in Detroit for years. Children were in school, very young at the time. I'm fired. And here's the excuse they gave. Well, you're going, we understand, on weekends, you're going back to Detroit and doing your weekend show. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, that's a conflict of interest. Well, wait a minute. You can't, the, the signals don't even cross. You can't, I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah, well, we, well, okay, they realized that that was a bogus argument. And then here was their argument. We want you to stay in Philadelphia on weekends. So they actually fired you. They fired me. They fired you. Yeah. And that was it. They fired me. Okay. And, for, and, and, and hold on. So for a year, I was without an income. Now, it's interesting. You answered my question, which was a key question with that, with that particular story. But I have to circle back because people are listening to this and I have to be accountable to them. Has your view of the relationship between white people and black people changed over the years? Well, the relationship between white people and black people have changed. Well, that's what I'm interested in your observation. What have you seen? What, well, what do you well, think? I don't I, I mean, I don't even I mean, I, I don't even understand that question. I mean, it, it, why are you asking me if my relationship has changed? Has your I didn't relationship ask you if your relationship changed? has changed. I said asked, your observation. And, and if your it observa- has changed. Joe, Joe, I, if, all I'm asking you is, do you think since you have been active in as an activist in civil rights and, and race has been a part of you're on a on a channel called the Urban View, which is a, a word urban that I guess at this point is a code word for 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 African-American. Um, I'm just asking you, do you think that race relations in America is are improving, getting worse, staying the same? That's basically what I'm asking, because you're a perfect person to ask that question, because that's something that you have focused on and something that you're quite expert at. I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, let me let me let me I'll be very honest with you, and I'm going to be straight up honest with you. Of course, things have changed. Of course, they have changed. And, and in some cases. They've gotten worse. Why, um, why do you take offense or are you surprised that I would ask a question like be, that? My, my, because it's a naive question. Because of course it has changed. Of course it has changed. And in some cases, it has gotten worse. I, I mean, excuse me. I'm dealing with, and yes, I'm, and I'm not offended. I'm just telling you straight up my reaction. And, and mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you why. Are you kidding me? We just, we just, we're doing a story on a young man who gets chased down in Michigan over a traffic stop, and a cop pulls out his uh, his uh, his uh, revolver and shoots him point blank in, in the back of the head. Well, let me tell you, that's been going on a hell of a long time, and and on my show, I then talk about. Hell, that, I mean, we can go back 200 years. Oh, but don't bring up history. Whoa, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. We're not, we're banning books that you can't even uh, have a book in a, in a, in a, in a school about Rosa Parks. 
and I work with Rosa Parks. I, I, you, wait a minute. You're talking to somebody who had to boycott a city with Rosa Parks. We write about it in the book. Who had to boycott Dearborn, Michigan, because, because the city of Dearborn passed an ordinance that said if, if you didn't live in Dearborn, which, by the way, was less than 1% African-American, you could not use their public parks. That's Sirius XM Satellite Radio Urban View Channel talk show host Joe Madison. His new book written with David Canton is titled Radioactive. And the conversation you just heard was excerpted from a much longer conversation on my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, which will be posted this coming Tuesday at mhinterview.com. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. Looking back at the week of Monday, April 18th through Friday, April 22nd, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.